Hey, good morning. I uh, sure hope you're doing well. I want to welcome those down at Pleasant View and uh, those in the chapel this morning. Uh, Pleasant View, we're praying for you all this week as you start uh, kids camp. We're excited for you, and uh, God has obviously blessed this for us. I don't know if you've heard or not. I don't know if they announced it this morning, but uh, at the kid camp this week, I mean, over 60 kids gave their hearts to Jesus for the first time. Over 60 kids. Isn't that not amazing? 60 children. Yeah, so we got to like change the 10,000 number now, you know what I'm saying? It's like 9,000, whatever that is, you know, so uh, we hope the same for Pleasant Let's just pray and ask God to produce that and uh, make that happen. Lord, thank you so much for uh, the hope in you, and the, the truth be told, many people who are listening to the sound of my voice right now are, are here because of something that happened at some kids' camp, some vacation Bible school or something as a child. And so we're grateful, Lord, for this opportunity that you give our church to reach out into the communities we're a part of. And uh, we thank you for the incredible, incredible week that happened here at Central Campus. And we're looking forward to hearing the awesome reports from Pleasant View Campus. Uh, just come, Lord. We, we know that the base of all this is prayer. So just come and have your way and move in a mighty way, we pray, in order that these communities would be transformed and, uh, and we'll, we'll keep lifting that before you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sort of excited to begin the series. This is the one that's going to kind of get started through the fall and do the fall launch as all the students come back and everybody comes back from vacation. And so uh, this is actually going to uh, be, be, be that series. There's a lot of neat stuff planned for the month. Uh, but the focus of this particular series is on what I would say is probably Jesus' second most popular parable or popular story. I mean, if Jesus has his bestseller list, this would be number two. I think number one would be the prodigal son. You may not agree with me, but I think that would tend to be what his number one bestseller was. If you talk to anybody, say, have you ever heard of the prodigal son? Yeah, yeah, I've heard the prodigal. But number two, certainly a close second, would be the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Even if you haven't heard the story, you've probably been by a hospital called Good Samaritan or something like that along the way. And then like sometimes on the weekly news, there will be some story that will come on and they'll call it. This is a Good Samaritan kind of story where someone goes out of their way to sort of help someone else. And so this has sort of become part of our culture. So this morning, what I want to do, just to kind of lay the groundwork for this series, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page with what this story is truly about. And the reason we're doing all this is this. Every time a live gathers, we want people to leave and be more like Jesus. That's the whole underlying secret message we're trying to communicate. We want people to be like Jesus when they leave. I want to be more like Jesus when I'm when I'm done with you folks on Sunday morning. And so as we engage with this passage, there are really, I think, two cliffs or two mistakes that we want to try to avoid in this well-known story. In our story, kind of, in our, and in our story, the religious guide in this story, he makes both mistakes. And you can see them early on. I'm just going to call them to your attention. And this is a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal is this. Whenever you read the Scripture, one of the cool things you can do to kind of engage with Scripture is figure out who you are in the story. Make sense? So don't just read it and say, oh, like there was like, you know, three guys who went and did this or Jonah and the whale. Figure out who you are in the story. As far as the message from God, who are you in the story? And so this story is especially rich, the story of the Good Samaritan, because we can actually see glimpses of ourselves in every character in this story. At the beginning, we are really more like the religious lawyer. That's kind of who we're going to identify with. 
There are other times we're going to be like a guy who gets beaten up and laid in the ditch. And then there are other times we're going to be more like the ones who passed by. And hopefully there'll be times we'll be like the Good Samaritan. Now the reason I'm bringing up all these mistakes that are made by the religious lawyer is, is very simply this. It's because I've seen them in my own life. And respectfully, I've seen them in some of your lives. And so I think it's important that we kind of visit this at a personal level. I don't think I intentionally make the mistakes that I'm getting ready to share with you, but they're more the result of how I see Christianity or how I see religion and Mike's response to these two ideas. So, so let me share the two mistakes the lawyer makes and perhaps some of us as we, make, as we relate to God. The first mistake the lawyer makes is this. He thinks he can pay his own way. He thinks he can pay his own way. Another term would be kind of more boring, but it would be to over-moralize the term. And basically it's this. God blesses me because I'm good. That's why God blesses me. And the gooder I am, the more blessings I achieve. That's how some of us are approaching Christianity. If I can just be really, really, really good, then I will be blessed. Your relationship with God and my relationship with God in that kind of scenario is like a merit badge system. And we all have these sashes. And so we get merit badges based on how good we are with God. And that's how people relate to God. I earn God's blessing. I earn God's protection. I earn God's comfortable life. I earn a comfort-free life or a pain-free life. The lawyer makes that mistake in the story. Here's the second mistake he makes. It's this. I'm all that. I'm all that. A more boring term with this would be to kind of over-spiritualize it. And here's how this goes. I'm at the head of the class when it comes to God. That's how he feels. God and I are good. In fact, we're probably better than anybody else. Certainly better than anybody else at this church. God and I are good. And God smiles more on me because I read this translation of Scripture. The only real translation of Scripture. God blesses me more because I don't drink, smoke, or chew. Or go with girls that do. That's exactly right. That's why God blesses me. I am, I am severely blessed, you know. Um, I've never committed sin. Well, at least never a really big sin. I've had little sins, but I've never sinned as much as like any of you people. And I certainly have, um, I haven't sinned like big that, that anybody knows about. You know, that's kind of that's these people. So basically, I'm better than the rest of you. Now, let's just be honest. It's not too hard. I've obviously stated an extreme, but it's not too hard for me to see traces of both of these mistakes in my own life. And just to let you know, I can see them in yours too, so you're not hiding anything. We all kind of fight these. There's a part of me that believes this. If I can keep God happy, good things happen to me. And you know why I believe that? Listen, because it's true. Hear me out on this. If I love my wife and children as God's Word designed it, my life's going to be better. All of us believe that. If, if, if I will um, use the Scripture to define how I relate to other people, my life will be better. I'll miss a mess of life's pitfalls. We all believe that. If I care for my soul as God word, God's Word instructs me, my life is better. If I handle money as God's Word teaches me to handle money, I'm going to be better. So, of course, the natural conclusion is, if I do good things, I feel God's blessing. And there's nothing wrong with this so far. The problem comes when I think I'm earning God's blessing 
by doing good things. If I am good, God rewards me. If I am bad, God takes away my rewards. God keeps this incredible record of all the good I do and all the bad I do. And hopefully this scales balance. Friends, this isn't Christianity. That's karma is what that is. And this is a dangerous thinking because the next level of that kind of thinking, the reason all that's dangerous is because it's such a hint of truth to it. But the reason it's dangerous is the next level is I think I earn God's love. And that's when we get in trouble. And we make that jump. God stops being a heavenly father who loves and cares for us and is always with us. And the heavenly father becomes the heavenly employer that we work for. And nobody wants that kind of relationship with God. And to keep the honesty going this morning, the second mistake that I'm all that, it's also something I wrestle with. Come on, I'm a pastor. Are you? Obviously, God's going to be into me. I mean, obviously, I mean, I went to school. I went into debt so I could be a pastor. I mean, isn't that amazing? Have you done that? No. So if a rapture happens, you know who's going first, don't you? I don't either. But anyway, whoever's going first. So you start thinking that way, you know? God's really into me. I mean, I tied my income to the church. Lord, you see the check I put in today? My wife and children were at kids camp every night last week. Where were you? And we start feeling that. You know, we sort of, I'm all that. God, have you seen this? Now, that sounds horrible when I say it out loud. And we start thinking, you know, man, I'm obviously more spiritual than the rest of you. But aren't there traces of that that, I, that, are, that we're embarrassed to say are part of us? Come on, be honest. Just kind of allow the Lord to teach us something. God, I'm doing all that you want me to do. So obviously, I am your favorite person on the planet. It's me and you against all of them. And that's just church people. I know if it came down to me versus people that are not church, people who don't go to church, people who don't give, people who don't serve, people who don't have a fish on their car, or even worse, people who have a fish with legs on their car, those kinds of people, I know you would choose me because I am all that. And these are the two pitfalls that are part of this story. Pay your own way and I'm all that. And we're going to see both in this story. Now, Like all passages of Scripture, there's always a context. And there's a context for this passage of Scripture. And the story is offered at a tense time in Jesus' ministry. Jesus and the religious experts of the day are not on the same page. In fact, they're, they're at odds. And part of the tension, to be honest, was due to the fact Jesus kept riling them up. Jesus kept stirring them up. He was going after everything the religious experts had established on their own. Their whole religious system was based on these two mistakes. But Jesus didn't kind of make it easy for them to sort of fade away. Jesus kept, I would say, inciting them. And you can take that up with someone else. But he called them names. Really. Jesus called these people names. I mean, something we teach our children not to do. Don't call those people names. That's bad. But it's exactly what Jesus did. He called the religious leaders a brood of vipers. I had to look that up because I didn't know what a brood was. It's an offspring of snakes. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's probably not a compliment. You know, that's not a great thing to call someone. But he did it, and he did it in a public setting. He said, you all are sons of snakes. And then he said, you all are, he literally said, you're sons of Satan. Can you think of anything we use in our culture that would be similar to what Jesus said? Because that's very similar. He said, you people are whitewashed tombs. 
You look really good. Your cars are all shiny on Sunday. You got on some pretty clothes and you smell good, but you stink like death on the inside. Listen, guys, Jesus is stirring them up. This is not crawling Jesus' lap and he says, oh, aren't you a cute little brood of vipers? That's not what's happening, okay? Jesus is inciting them. He is stirring them up. He despised what these folks taught and the abusive power they represented. I kind of think in church world today, it would be good if we got riled up a little bit about it as well. He came to make all of that right, so he was intense and aggressive when it came to these religious leaders. And Jesus and the religious leaders were ideologically and philosophically in opposition to one another, and that opposition was fought on the streets of the communities. It wasn't private conversation. It was in the streets of the community. So whenever you see in Scripture a religious expert talk to Jesus, it usually resulted in a conflict. So let's get into it. This is from Luke chapter 10, verse 25, one of the places you can find the Scripture. I think it's in three different Gospels. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. The expert in the law, the religious lawyer, stood up in a public gathering with only one intention, friends. Don't miss this. This is important for you to get what this whole thing's about. This is a public showdown. This is a thorough examination of Jesus in hopes of discrediting him and what he teaches. This isn't coffee conversation. This is a showdown. This is Hillary and Donald in the same room. It's Oprah and Condoleezza. It's Harry and Voldemort. It's Dabo and Mushtamp. It's Roadrunner and the Wild E. Coyote. Coyote. Did I get everybody in the room? That's kind of what's going on in this moment. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here the lawyer makes the first mistake of pay my own way. Do you see it? Inherit... It's evident in the questions, and all kinds of alarms go off in the question because it's the wrong question. The question assumes that we can act a certain way and then get an inheritance we deserve. And that's a huge mistake when it comes to God. It assumes the ownership of eternal life is actually based on my action. It assumes that I can have eternal life because of what I do and don't do. And from a Christian believer, or leader, let me tell you something. This would be so easy for me to sell you people. In fact, a whole system of religion was built on it. Here's 600 and some odd laws that we have to obey. And if I could convince you that you could be with Jesus by doing A, B, and C, wouldn't that be attractive? It's kind of like a checklist. You could, tra- you could check it off. Just kind of create a list, and all you had to do was keep the list, and it would be forever good. Wouldn't that be amazing? If relating to God was all based on a merit badge system, wouldn't that be really cool? Let's let's take it out of the God thing and let's put it in the marriage thing. Let's put let's how about this? What must I do to have a marriage that lasts forever? Now let's think about how we'd answer that question. Some of you, you're at step one. Well, let's find somebody who's willing to marry me. Okay, so I understand that, but let's, let's move beyond that and say, okay, some of us that have marriages, so let's, let's move beyond that. How about this? Let's make a list. That's what we'll do. Yeah. And we'll get merit badges for our list. Uh, take out the garbage uh, and, and get a badge. How about that? Uh, make, a, make a good living. Get a badge. You don't make a really good living? Mm, don't Like half a badge, but not a full badge. Raise bright kids. No badge for you. Okay, live in the right neighborhood. Don't live in a neighborhood. 
get a badge. Clean the dishes, get a badge. Mow the grass, get a badge. Buy a goat so you don't mow the grass, no badge for you. Invite her family over all the time and get a big badge. I mean, a list could go on forever, wouldn't it? What would you add to my list? It would never be complete. You know why? Who can describe all the necessary behaviors for a marriage that lasts forever? You can't. I can't. So imagine trying to do that with God. And now you understand exactly what the entire religious establishment was doing. The entire religious establishment was peddling a due religion to a done God. <laughs> when I'm the only one that laughs, I'm the only one that thought that was kind of cute. But I, I did. I thought that was kind of cute statement. I, you all had no appreciation. I hope you folks at Pleasant View are cheering because these people are mean to me this morning. This is part of the reason there was so much tension. The religious establishment is focused on what we do for God. God, look at me. I'm over here. My nose is clean all the time. God is focused on what he has actually done for us. Those are two different perspectives. We can't ever do enough to be good enough. If you're playing that game, stop playing the game, put it in a box and put it back in the closet. That won't work. The path of pay my own way is actually rooted in one of two unhealthy places. Either we end up trying to do a bunch of good things, hoping that we can somehow right the scales and counter all the bad things we did, or we try to do enough good things so I convince myself, ready, I'm better than you are. And if I do that, God will certainly notice me above you. I don't have to win. I just have to beat you people. I just have to come to alive and make sure I'm the one who's shining the brightest here. Can you imagine what the church would be like if that dominated everybody's thinking? And who would want to be part of that? Following Christ isn't being good and hope for the best. Hope the inheritance is a good one. Following Christ is accepting this life-changing, trajectory-altering truth. Jesus does for me what I could never do for myself. That's what following Christ is. Jesus blew any idea that we could ever be good enough to earn God's favor out of the water. You see, if we are all about trying to earn God's favor... The scripture is really clear. It's only established one bar, and that bar has never changed. Are you ready? This is what you have to do. Here it is. The only bar is to be 100% good all the time. That's the bar. No, no failure. No slip-ups ever. Christianity teaches we are to do good things, but not to save ourselves, friends. Not to inherit anything. The lawyer comes to Jesus. What do I have to do to inherit this? And Jesus has processed all of that we just talked about in a whole lot quicker time, but he's the son of God, and I'm not. So it took us a little longer to get there. But here's how it goes. Jesus said to him, well, what's written in the law? Keep in mind, who's he talking to? A religious lawyer. Who's he talking to? What is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answers, well, love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer is basically quoting Hall of Fame scripture from the Old Testament. It's something every Jewish kid would 
would all know. It was kind of cross-stitched and hung on their walls in the homes they grew up in, okay? In fact, Jesus made the same answer. Do you remember in Matthew 22? Someone said, hey, what's the greatest commandments? He said these. Love God, love self, love others. And so Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer, which people that are in law world, they love this. Oh, I'm right. I'm the right one. You're the wrong one. That's how they define everything. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm A plus. You're F minus. You've given the right answer. Do this. You'll live. Love God with everything you have all the time. Love everybody as much as you love yourself. Simple truth. But not an easy truth, is it? And we all know it. How many of us have done this 100% effectively? Y'all remember junior high? Scratch that off. How about this? Y'all remember the 80s? Yep, I saw some of y'all dancing and all the kids were doing I know where y'all got that. That was the 80s, okay? How about your seven years of college? Y'all remember that, right? How many of us have loved ourselves the way God loves us? One of the most dominant, increasing fields in our culture right now is how we're trying to teach people how to love themselves. Jesus lobbed a softball for the lawyer. Any school kid could have answered the question in the same way the lawyer answers the question. Jesus made it seem so simple. And the lawyer in this public showdown is all of a sudden embarrassed. Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Peter did this a while back. Y'all remember when he said, how many times do I have to forgive? Seventy? Remember that? That word justify actually means to be declared entirely innocent or right. Did you hear what I just said? He wants to be right. And he wants everybody who's watching to know, I'm right. This is not a me too community. It is this moment of self-honesty and the realization that he couldn't live up to his own answer. And this is where he makes mistake number two. He says, well, I'm all that. The over-spiritualizing mode. It's interesting to me, in the lawyer's question, back to Jesus, he doesn't ask the question that I would ask back to Jesus. Think about it. If Jesus said, love God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself, what would be your question back to Jesus? Because the lawyer skips right over the question I have. He doesn't ask How in the world can I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? He doesn't even ask, how in the world can I love myself with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? The religious lawyer assumes he's already doing that. Because that's what people who are trying to pay their own way do. That's what people who think I'm all that do. They don't spend any time in repentance before the Father. They spend time praying for people who aren't like them. Religious lawyer makes the same mistake that we make in our journeys with Christ. And we swap the relationship for a religion, which basically says this, I do good so God does good for me. And it's one of the biggest turnoffs to Christianity on the planet. Because you know what happens when your dominant thinking, your dominant philosophy related to faith is this? You know what happens? Play this out with me. And I know I've thought a lot about this, you know, but, so I'm kind of hitting you out of, the, out of the blue. But here's what happens. When you think doing good so God does good for you, 
That gives you a low view of God's law. What it means is this. You believe that all you have to do is act your way into what God teaches in the law. And you can't. It's what the establishment was doing. Over 600 rules there trying to figure out how to do what God's law was. Now does it give you a low view of God's law. It gives you too high a view of yourself and it's not real. Oh, I can do this. I can act like this. No, you can't. Have you seen how you look in the morning? We have real problems on the planet, people. I mean, come on. And not only that, this is the, perhaps one of the most difficult things. I think this is why churches just decide they don't want to reach their communities because it gives them a low view of other people. We don't want those people in here. They're going to mess up those of us who are doing that so well. Religion always leads to one of two places, and neither one of them are any good. The options are either spiritual arrogance or despair. Arrogance says, I'm all that, and leads to spiritual pride. The despair says, I could never be that, and that leads to spiritual defeat. And I see this in epic proportions in church world. The lawyer's choosing arrogance. I can do this, no problem. I really don't even need God, and I certainly can do it better than you. Therefore, I am better than you. And all of you people see that, right? Now listen, if there's a part of you that is repulsed, I'm not talking about a head trip. I'm talking about guts, like repulsed by what we've been talking about today. If there's a part of you that says, I want nothing to do with those kinds of things. I am all that, pay my own way. If you see it in other people and it makes your stomach turn, in fact, if you're like me, it may even make you a little angry when you hear it. The self-righteousness, the judgmental attitudes, if that repulses you, then you're just like Jesus. Because those two things repulsed Jesus. So much so that he called them names. Kind of names that our children would get sent home with a note because they used those things. When I read the scripture, I told you I like to figure out which character I am. You know who we are so far in this story? I'm not Jesus. I'm more like the religious lawyer than I care to admit to you. Religious lawyer is still trying to save face. So he says to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Making sure everybody heard. Because that's what religious lawyers do. Pay my own way. I'm all that people. They fight over theology and doctrine to the nth degree. Even to the point of dividing the body. It's what they do. And then Jesus shared this story that we've heard before. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We'll hear more about this in the series. This is actually called the Highway of Blood because it was such a high crime type area. He fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This would have been normal behavior, okay? Normal behavior for that road, okay? It would be normal. Now, by chance... A priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. <laughs> Yay, clergy. Okay. You know, so he, he, he bailed. Uh, so likewise, a Levite. By the way, a Levite is sort of the, the, the tribe that all priests come from. So they were sort of set apart as well. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. Keep in mind, he's talking to a religious lawyer. So far, the religious people have bombed in Jesus' story. 
but a Samaritan, which is bad news. And I can't even, I tried, I tried to figure out a, 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 a similarity, but I really, really can't. I put the word terrorist in to try to communicate that, but that's probably not even fair to use that word. But a Samaritan, despised, hated, don't mess with those people, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw the man in the ditch, he was moved with pity. This is called compassion. We'll get into that later. He went to him and bandaged his wound and poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of this guy. When I come back, I'll repay you whatever more that you spend. And Jesus turns to the religious lawyer and everybody who's listening to the conversation, and he says the same question I ask you. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the person who fell into the hands of the robbers? And we're all bright people, so we know the right answer. The lawyer said it's the one who showed him mercy. No pay my own way. No, I'm all that. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus leans in close and says, you go and do the same thing. You know, I wanted to end this message right here. But I think I would be dishonest with you if I did. See, this sounds so easy. So what I should do right now is I should wrap this up in a pretty bow and you all should all leave. And I should say, go forth and be the good Samaritan and show mercy to everybody. And you all say, oh, that was a good one. I'm going to show mercy to somebody today. But here's my personal issues with this. It sounds easy, but man, that is so not easy. Agree? Come on. Do you agree? It's so not easy. In fact, let me just go more so that this might be the last Sunday for some of you in church because, I mean, that pastor's whacked, and that's it, fair. But here's the thing. Are, isn't there a list of people we don't want moving into our neighborhoods? Let me answer that for you. Yes, there is. Some of your list is skin color. It is. Fair? Maybe not your list, but people you know. Some of your lists, list is sexual orientation. Don't let them move in our neighborhood. No sirree, Bob. Some of our list is political. Oh, they voted for him. They voted for her. Some of our list is income. Some of our list is people who party, people who don't. See, we have this list. I have a list. And it's a result of our two spiritual mistakes we've been talking about all day. Pay my own way and I'm all that. I mean, who could obviously, who could love people who don't love them back? Who could love people who don't think like we think and vote like we vote and do marriage like we do marriage and go to church on Sunday like good godly people in America should do? Who could love those people? Who would go out of their way to help people who actually seek to harm you, Tom? Are you saying we should actually embrace people of another religion who's gone on record that they want to harm us? Are you saying that? Who would be willing to help someone at the cost of personal risk or the risk to my children? Who would do that? It makes sense for me to help people who love me. 
But who would help a stranger who doesn't love back? Isn't that part of, part of you that says some people get what they deserve? Isn't there part of you that says, well, they should never started the pills to begin with. That's why they're addicted. It's their own fault. Well, if they weren't in the same sex relationship, then they wouldn't have the issue going on in their home. If they'd get their kids to church, they wouldn't have those kids rebelling and carrying on like that. Isn't there a part of you that says, how is this my problem? Of course there's a part of you, because I've just described the modern church. And I've certainly described some of the issues I wrestle with. In this story, you know who you are? You know who I am? Not the Good Samaritan. You know who you are? You're the dude in the ditch. That's who you are. First and foremost, core DNA part of you, you're the dude or dudette in the ditch. I like to think I'm the Good Samaritan, but I'm not. I'm the guy in need of being assisted. I'm the guy spiritually blind and spiritually destitute, and if someone doesn't show up, my future is dim. I'm already half dead, and the other half is coming. So let me give you a key to sort of unlock the power of this story and this interchange. The key is actually found in the book of Romans, chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Kairos, Christ died for the ungodly. Before I got my act all together and I could stand on a platform and talk about Jesus, I was laying half dead in the ditch. You still love me? And you know what? I know that's true about you too. Because everybody travels through the ditch. While I was still weak. You know what that word weak? I looked it up. It means helpless in light of circumstances. I was helpless, friends. Do you understand helpless? No, we don't, because we work our entire lives to try to not be helpless. I couldn't do a thing for myself. I was a turtle on my back, waving my arms, creating nothing, or legs. I don't know what they have. See, the Good Samaritan story made some sense that day, but it makes the most sense after the cross and the resurrection. This is the cure for our disease. I pay my own way. I'm all that. Nope. We were beaten to a pulp, lying in a ditch, and if someone didn't intervene, we were going to die. And then the two most powerful words of Scripture. Verse 8. But God. I know you were in a ditch. I know you were. You might have avoided some of the major pitfalls, but you were headed for the ditch. But God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. The only one who had the legitimate right to avoid me and my sin. The only one that had the legitimate moral standing to walk by, drive by Tom and let him stay in his own filth. Didn't. He didn't. He rescued me. Come on. He rescued me. And he cleaned me up with his blood. And he set me free with his resurrection. Never to go back to the ditch again. That is grace. And that is the gift. And that is freedom. And that's complete surrender and total dependence on the one who rescued me so there's no room in my heart for paying my own way and I'm all that be a people of grace that know what it's like to be in the ditch that's an encouraging place to end the message don't you think Uh, thanks for letting me process that with you this morning Lord thank you for these beautiful people and man the high honor of being able to share with them what you're doing in my heart related to this story. It's, it's so fresh for me these days, Lord. And um, God, uh, as I prepare and think through all this, you know, my heart is that alive would be known for a different path. We wouldn't be known as being a group of people that's all that. They think they're all that. Or a group of people that trying to pay their own way. What could I have to do to earn your favor, God? We don't want to be that body. Lord, we do not want to be that body. And if there's any attitude of that in our hearts, we repent for that. We ask you to forgive us for that. It's wrong. It's not of you. It's sin, Lord. And we don't want to characterize this gathering. And so I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would root out any of those things in us through this series. Start with my heart heart of our board and our leadership our staff root those things out and raise up a mighty me too community of ditch dwellers we're not afraid of the ditch we're not afraid of the neighbors because we know exactly what that's like and we know the way out we know the way out it's not through wiping my own nose because I'm helpless but it's through a free gift of grace free gift of mercy because my Savior stopped by and rescued me. Hey, listen, if you're in the ditch this morning, Jesus is still in the rescuing business. You got in that ditch because of some of the decisions you've made. Sometimes those decisions are physical, sometimes they're sexual, sometimes it's a decision in your heart, self-righteousness, arrogance, pride. Sometimes it's an addiction and it's put you in the ditch. Sometimes it's relationships and you're in a ditch today. I just want you to know Jesus is always passing by. He's passing by right now and he's willing to pull you out of that ditch but you have to receive it. You're totally helpless like the turtle on the back of his shell. But you've got to be willing to receive the gift. While you were still in the ditch, Christ died for you. In order that you might be saved. You could do that. Just use your own words. 
Use the Samaritan. Get me out of the ditch, God. Whatever it is, turn me from where I am now to something that you want me to be. Forgive me. And God will do that for you. We love you, Lord. You're the hope of the world. You're the hope of Tom, and you're the hope of a life. In your name, amen.